Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Voce Dialogues. And it's my great joy today to be in conversation with Thomas Hitoshi Puixma. Hello, Thomas. Hello. What a pleasure to be here. It's great to be with you, too. We've been brought together by a mutual friend, Andrew Harvey, and I am just so excited to discover your work and for us to be in conversation about it within the context of the theme of compassion and the voice of compassionate evolution. So let me just share with you, if I may, just a little bit about Thomas, this remarkable human being. Thomas Hitoshi Puixma is an author, translator, teacher, and performer. His translation of the classical Tamil masterpiece on ethics, power, and love, the Kroll, Tiruvalluvar's Tiru Kroll, was recently published by Beacon Press. Other books by Thomas include The Safety of Edges, which is a book of poems, Give, Eat, and Live, poems of Advairar, translated from the Tamil, and Body and Earth. Thomas speaks and performs widely, teaches for the Cozy Grammar series and online video courses, and has received grants and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, For Culture, Artist Trust, and the U.S. Fulbright Program. So, Thomas, it just feels absolutely essential that we hone in today in our conversation, and I'm sure there'll be many more, but on your latest book, which is kind of really beyond words to describe what it is and how you came to be writing it and what part compassion plays within this book, The Choral, Tiruvalluvar's Tirukural. And this is a translation, a new translation by Thomas of the classical Tamil masterpiece on ethics, power, and love. Just a few little inconsequential themes like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, you know, a couple things. <laughs> you know, and all of that condensed and contained within this extraordinary book of poetry, which, as I understand it, goes right back to, we're talking the third century, are we? Third, fourth, fifth, depending on how it's dated. It's usually said to come at the end of the great Sangam period, which was the earliest and one of the most powerful times of literary flourishing in uh, what we now call Tamil Nadu. 
Yes. Yes, I know that area. I've traveled through there. So that is really beautiful. And, and so we're about to hear all about your life there, how your Western life, your Eastern life, your connection with India, and then, of course, with this extraordinary sacred work and how it's come about, how it flowered within your life and so on. So as I understand it, the first part of the book is dedicated to the theme of virtue, the second part to the theme of wealth, and the third part to love. So I think we're going to just need a few weeks on this one. (laughs) 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 Strap your safety belts and let's just go for it. Obviously, as you're aware, the whole theme of compassion is is what we're here for. And I would love just to really investigate with you how this extraordinary sacred work came into your life. And then for us to really start to really investigate and inquire into the role that compassion plays within this book. And then perhaps for us to venture into your own personal life and really what brought you to taking this journey all together? Well, I'll begin with how I, I encountered the work because I encountered it, I encountered this particular book in stages, step by step. In 1998, I was, a, I was awarded a two-year fellowship to live in the uh, city of Madurai in the state of Tamil Nadu. And Madurai has long been a cultural capital of Tamil Nadu more than 2,000 years of, 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 of history, even just in that town, in that city. And I was there on a fellowship to, on the one hand, to teach English at a college, but on the other hand, and, and at the time more important to me, was to, to study the Tamar language and to follow whatever interest I had. And in my case, that was to live in a village and to learn something about rooted community life in a village, especially in a place where language and land have been interwoven over millennia. Oh, I love that. Absolutely and, love that. And yeah. I was, I, I was uh, when I first arrived there, I was quite intent on learning to speak, and I was trying to find ways to interact with people. And one of my students invited me to his house for dinner. He was very eager about it, and when I felt like I could at least understand enough to make it <laughs> get by, <laughs> uh, I, I accepted. And, and I had this extraordinary feast, and all of his, his extended family and neighbors are, and friends were there to see this young American teacher who could somehow speak a word or two of Tummer. And at the end of the meal, the father gave me, before I left to go back to my quarters at the college, he gave me two books. One was a book of, of contemporary Tummer poetry, and the other was this book, the Tirukurar, or the Kurar. And he, he gave the Kurar with a very particular sense of reverence. It was a sort of gift edition, the very simple sort of cover. This was not a wealthy family, so I was already overwhelmed to be given uh, not just one, but two books. And he said, when you learn Tamar well, and you must learn it as well as you possibly can, you must read this book because it contains wisdom about every area of life. Learn Tamar well and read this book well he said, as I took the book off into the night. But at the time, I really didn't have any plans to learn how to read Tamar because Tamar is a language which has very distinct written and spoken forms. And I thought that just getting my tongue and heart and mind around the spoken language would be more than enough to occupy me for a decade or two. So I, I, uh, I, I didn't enter into the book at that point. I wasn't able to read it yet. But because I had an extraordinary teacher named Dr. K.V. Ramakodi, 
Uh, he not only guided me into the ability to speak uh, and not only reawakened me to uh, a delight in words that had become somewhat dormant in me, he also found ways to entice me into learning to read and write as well. And not only to read and write, but also to encounter or re-encounter poetry. Because poetry is something that had become a little bit, uh, I had become distant from, I think largely due to the kind of education that I had and, you know, being in classrooms where we were expected to analyze poems. And it's a really great way, in my experience, to kill a poem, <laughs> to, to render it a kind of dead specimen, like a, a, a frog you might dissect on a dissecting tray. Yeah. Um, I had lost touch with something, uh, with a, a, a playful, primal delight in language that my teacher uh, was able to reawaken in me. And he did so by having me memorize poetry from a 12th century Tamar woman poet and saint named Abvayar, who I would later go on to translate. And what happened in that process of memorizing these poems is that because the poems were, you know, eight centuries old, I couldn't yet understand them directly. I mean, I had the gist of them and it would be, it, it, they were very beautifully written and it wouldn't be very long until I could understand them. But before I could understand them, all I could do was recite the sounds of them. Right. And listen to the sounds they made. Not just the sounds I could hear, but the feelings I could feel in my body reciting them. And something wow. began to happen, which is that I finally began to listen to how the poems sound. Oh. And I could hear that they sound good, that there was music to them, that there was rhythm to them. There was a rhythmic delight in life and language in them. And that to me was the great opening. I could suddenly hear things that I, uh, I'm sure I had heard before, but I hadn't noticed, that hadn't registered, that hadn't touched my heart the way they were now beginning to touch my heart. And so that when I went back after what turned out to be two and a half years, back to English, back to North America, I could suddenly hear English in a new way. I could hear the language I had grown up with in a new way, and I could hear poetry, and I could delight in poetry. I could, I could revel in it in a way I, I hadn't been able to do, except perhaps maybe as a child. And that opened me, that began a 20-year apprenticeship to language and to the inner lives of not only English and Tamar, but also Spanish, which I went on to learn. Brilliant. Yeah, because that literally is enunciated mm. from the center of the chest, isn't it? It really, you really hear it from there. It's really embodied language. Yes. Um, and that's what I hear you accessing here. It's uncanny, isn't it, that our Western education has been so devoid of this soul, embodied, soulful connection with sound. Yes. I mean, that's where you and I really, really connect. I'm very aware of that. And I think that's why Andrew brought us together, because of this absolute fascination with the word, with the voice, with the embodiment of it, with the translation of it, with the seamless connection, the way that it bridges silence with song. Yes. And, and as you say, the musicality of it. And of course, that brings you into a place of, of loving compassion. Yes. Yes. Right. It brings you into a place of connectedness, not only to your own body and breath, but to the body and breath of the world. Beautiful, beautiful. So how, how did the story unfold from there for you? This is extraordinary. Really is. So I, I was able to return um, I, several times. I, I spent about a total of, of five years in South mm. India. So after that initial visit, several years later, I was able to get a Fulbright grant for a year of study. This was in 2003 and 2004. And I was interested in going even more deeply into how land and language connect and how people and land 
interrelate, how they call to each other, how they understand their relatedness, their relationship to each other. And as part of this, I thought maybe it's time for me to read this book that my student's father had so lovingly given me. And so we read the entire Tirukoro. It has 133 chapters, and each chapter has 10 very short verses. They're, they're not even two lines long. They're one and five-eighths line long, if you want to be very precise about it. And each of these chapters deals with some aspect of life. So there's a chapter on the gods or God or the godlike qualities of great teachers. That's the opening chapter of the work. But this proceeds directly to the second chapter, which is on the glory of rain, which already suggests how deeply embodied this work is, how deeply interested it is in our earthly life, in in the qualities of the, the earth below our feet and the, the, the heavens above and how rain connects these worlds, these realms. There are chapters on the right time to do something, the right place in which to do something, on the ins and outs of sulking in committed relationships, and on and on. And so I read uh, the entire work with my teacher, and not only that, we also read all of the uh, most important old commentaries. These come from the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries. I, I memorized maybe some six or 700 of the verses, and I even learned how to write in Tamar in the particular verse form of the Kural. In fact, the, the word Kural is yes. the name of that verse form. Oh, okay. and so tiru, uh -huh. the the prefix tiru means sacred or holy or splendid or great. So yeah. it's the great uh, verse form, the the great kural verse form, tiru kural. And uh, so I was entering into this this world and into this work, and I was, in a way, I was trying to make the poet Tiruvalluvar into one of my teachers, or to put it more truthfully, I was trying to make myself into one of his students. Goodness. To a student of his through his extraordinary book of poems, his extraordinary poem, really, because all of the parts interweave. You're receiving a kind of transmission from the from the source, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Did you have a sense of of his presence, his actual presence with you? How did that actually show up for you? It just that's a know, wonderful question. It was a kind of, it was, in some ways, it was like being with my Tamar teacher himself, Dr. K.V. Ramakodi. It was as yeah. if it was a kind of slow process of approaching, of okay. coming to, of becoming familiar with, of, of, of getting to know the ways of this poet's heart and mind, as oh. I could begin to sense it and taste it through the poems that he bequeathed to us. So for me, it was very much a gradual, a gradual process, but it was also a process of immersion. I mean, I have this sense of you being a sort of receiver of revelation. That's what it sort of feels mm -hmm. like in the biblical sense of receiving the word. In my own case, I'm aware, for example, of a great teacher, Ananda Maima, who mm. uh, is a very strong presence in my life and also Andrew's. And never did I meet her, and yet there is this awareness of an embodiment of a receiving of the energy of her life, her life force, and how her words and her songs and her teachings, which are very much in line with what you're describing, you know, which is essentially that oneself is all there is, is so 
present in a very uncanny way, almost as if she's in the room, you know. Mm. And for some people, I don't have that gift, but some people do actually, in my groups and so on, they do actually have an awareness or some people have actually see her in the field of our working together, of our Mm. praying or um, sharing poetry or singing or meditating together. Literally, she shows up literally in that form. So I'm just interested to know what your experience experience of this extraordinary being from so long ago, how that is really being received by you in this process, because you speak about it with such simplicity and ease, you know, as if there's just no question about it. <laughs> you just came into this world to do this. It's like, it's no, it's no big deal. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. You know, as I think about it, you know, I find my my sense of Thiruvalluvar, his, his presence as a poet is is really as of a voice. Right. Of a voice that I have come to be able to hear more and more clearly and to embody more and more clearly. Right. And at the same time, there has been, and there was a great period of, of this, I thought, you know, when I finished this this study in 2004, that I'd, I'd gotten what I needed to get from the work and I would go on to my next project. But that was actually just the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because in the years since, when I would speak to Dr. Ramakurdi on the phone or when I would be able to go back and visit him in person, he would say things to me like, you know, somebody really ought to do a proper literary translation of the Tirukurar. And they should use those same commentaries that you and I read together. And I would always say, well, that's a wonderful idea. I'm sure there's (laughs) there's somebody out there who would be perfect for such a task. And it's so interesting to me because my my Tamar teacher never once, with just this one exception, never once told me, uh, never once shied away from telling me what he thought I should do or not do, whether I wanted to hear it or not. He, He had that kind of fatherly presence to me and 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 yeah. took the, the sort of fatherly and teacherly right of saying actually don't do that that's a bad idea or <laughs> actually i think you should for instance learn poetry and we're going to start with a 12th century tamil woman poet and saint and we'll memorize her poems and i'd learn to listen and and mm-hmm. and act on that as as best i could but i think because he himself was a poet he yeah. never once told me directly to translate this work because i think he understood he couldn't Nobody could tell somebody to to do that directly. Either it would have to occur in the depths of a person's heart or not. Right. For it to be authentic, for it to be worth doing. And it, honestly, for a decade, more than a decade, I didn't think I should do such a project. I think part of it came from my own sense that I was still learning how to be a poet in English. I didn't feel like I had anything close to the capacity. So it didn't even occur to me that I would translate a work like this. Until it did. Until in 2015, it was, I think, in December 2015, I suddenly thought, you know, maybe, maybe I'll give this work a try and, and see what happens. And on the 1st of January 2016, as it happened, um, just because it seemed like a good day to begin, not because I have any particular allegiance to New Year's resolutions or anything like that, I just thought, keep the accounting clean. <laughs> Start on the and uh, I was doing one verse a day, and I just that became part of my daily practice. And really? because there are, you know, 1,330 of these, I wasn't anticipating finishing it anytime soon. I was more interested in, in the doing of it. And so after I had maybe two or three chapters worth of verses, I, I rang up my teacher and I said, I, yeah, I've, I've started this, this translation. And he said, oh, Good. You fight. Uh, <laughs> now you get yourself back here and we'll look at this together. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. So there was obviously that awareness from him that there was a chance it would happen, but only by grace do these things happen, really, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like anything that is really worth doing has got to, it's just got to come from that absolute source of it all, isn't it? It's the source of why it is that we're here. And it's got to come from that place of absolute effortlessness, hasn't it? Effortless being. Yeah, you were speaking earlier about compassion, which is one of the beautiful yeah. themes which which is woven, in fact, throughout the entire quarrel. I, I can recognize a certain and extraordinarily patient form of compassion in my teacher for him not to push, even though he, you know, by the time it finally occurred to him, he was in his 80s. And once I had said yes, he said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. We better get on this. And then, you know, he, he said, if you can get yourself back to... I will cover our meals. I will, you will stay with me. And then we will read through the manuscript together. So this is 2017. I was able to go back and I thought we had got into it in depth in 2003, 2004. This was an entirely different thing altogether. We, uh, I thought we were just going to read through the translation and he's going to make sure it was okay. But we actually studied from beginning to end the entire book again. Oh, and and every single verse he pushed to me. He pushed my understanding of the original language to uh, greater depths. And because his English was quite remarkable in and of itself, he could look at my English translations and say, you know, this isn't bad, but it also isn't very good. <laughs> it now, has no life <laughs> to it. It has no pizzazz. Let's even get a little more oomph into it. And so uh-huh. I would get back to work. And it was my, my last time studying with him in person. And it was a, an extraordinarily glorious gift, that in and of itself, being there with him in his old house. His wife at this point had passed away several years before that. And so it was just him and me. And I was in some ways... I was a student, but I was also a companion. I was helping to bring, you know, breakfast and dinner from little snack shops outside in the town and and bringing lunch from the neighbor's house that we had arranged and walking with him to his favorite coffee shop to have a, or coffee stall, I should say, to have a cup of South Indian filter coffee in the afternoon. Oh, brilliant. It's a magical, magical time. And an extraordinary time as far as my coming into being able to, at least begin to dare to translate a work like this one. Oh my God. So it was given to you to, to really unfold and to evolve uh, and, and to bridge the East and the West through this extraordinary book, really. Yeah. There's just so much that's coming up. I mean, your whole experience of life out there in Tamil Nadu and the whole experience of voice and vocalizing being something that is so directly connected and embodied inspired by the relationship with the land that in itself is a kind of medicine for compassion isn't it it's going to it's going to inevitably generate kindness and a more relaxed state of mind yes so and it's something that right now is so so desperately needed and called for really in our time isn't it yeah the interconnection and the restoration of our honoring of our reverence for this extraordinary planet that we inhabit and nothing short of really bowing down to gaia you know to this planet and 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 really understanding you know that that language that arises out of the soil of our culture has to be heard again and it sounds as if your book and the mighty themes that it deals with is really offering us at this time. I mean, particularly Western contemporary minds, a whole new opportunity to wake up. Yes. 
It would be lovely if you would simply to share with us some of the poems, particularly the ones that relate to the theme of compassion. You mentioned it, how it interweaves, the theme interweaves throughout the book. Is there any one or two that you'd like to share with us? There are two that really in this moment, jump out at me. One comes from the first section of the book on ethics or on virtue, and it's from a chapter called Having Love. It's mm -hmm. the first of the 10 verses, uh, and so it sort of announces the theme of the chapter in its own way. And I'll share, I'll share the translation, and then I'll share the original tummer, and then I'll share the translation again so you can sort of hear them sandwiched in that way. Thank you. Is there a latch for love? The fullness of one's heart shows in the tears that well. Anbir kumundo arikum tar, arbalar pun kanir pusul tarum. Is there a latch for love? The fullness of one's heart shows in the tears that well. And there is already in this beautiful verse this understanding of how the fullness of our hearts connects with the flowing of our eyes, the flowing mm. of tears, the flowing of our feelings and emotions, mm. which is a very embodied understanding of love. This isn't a kind of abstract or idealized understanding of love. It's about how we experience in the flesh, how we experience it in our bodies. Mm. And I think of this verse often when I myself am moved or when I see people moved and I see you know, the tears welling up maybe even in somebody whom I may have mistakenly judged as being maybe cold-hearted or, or unduly reserved. Mm. And then there's that moment of, oh, yes, this too is a being like me, moved by what moves us human beings. Oh, um, yes. I think of it, you know, when I think of times where I've had to say goodbye to loved ones, whether because I'm going away for a time or whether because they are on the, the verge of transitioning beyond their earthly existence, and, and feeling a sense of gratitude for how these tears that flow are reminders of this fullness, are signs of this fullness of our hearts and the fullness of the life that we've lived together. Mm. And, and this verse connects beautifully with the second part of the book, which is on power, it's on prosperity, it's on, on community life. And so whereas this first verse is sort of about and is centered in the home life, our daily lives, making a home on the earth, the second part of the book is interested in, in leaders, in what does it mean to be a leader? Of course, in the original context, we have the figure of, of a sovereign, a king, a queen. But the, the verse is part of what makes them so astonishingly relevant, I think, is because they speak to leadership now, in any, you know, in the ways that all of us are, I think, called in our own lives and ways to be leaders, small and large, um, and how a leader can draw around herself a circle of poet advisors. This is the beautiful mm. image that comes. Gorgeous. Poet advisors who are not afraid, for instance, to thunder, mm. who are not afraid to tell the leader when they think she may be wrong, he may be wrong, they may be, mm. you know, off their rocker. Mm. And one of the chapters about the qualities of leadership is a chapter on that particular form of compassion which is called for in a leader. Mm -hmm. And the word in Tamar has a beautiful root meaning, which I've translated as eyes that are moved. Mm -hmm. 
the ability of our eyes to be moved, both in the sense to be moved to tears, and also the ability of our eyes themselves to move from beyond our own narrow perspective, from, you know, just standing where we seem to be in our own bodily experience, to stepping into another person's shoes, another person's sandals, another person's bare feet, and trying to, through the power of our imagination and through an imaginative form of compassion, to, to see the larger whole that we are all a part of. And this value is so important and so revered by not just the poet Tiruvalluvar, but by the tradition that he is writing out of, because it's connected to the very continuing, the very continuance of the cosmos. And so here's how the first verse in the chapter, Eyes That Are Moved, goes. And it's one of my favorite in the entire book. The astonishing beauty of eyes that are moved because it exists. This world exists. The astonishing beauty of eyes that are moved because it exists. This world exists. It really calls you into silence too, doesn't it? Yes. That awareness of wonder, the wonder of wonders. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. That's utterly beautiful. Utterly beautiful. Are you going to make a recording that allows people to, you know, to really enter into not only the meaning of this, but into the depths of silence that it invokes. These, mm, from these I would points. very much love to do such a thing. I am, yeah. And I am simply awaiting the right convergence of elements. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, I've, I have put together with the help of my husband, David Milkey, a series of videos, which we're releasing one a week, where I take just a verse, I take the the English translation and then the original Tamar and then the English and sharing them outside and in natural settings by waterfalls in the forest uh, and with a very short reflection so that in the interim we have a little taste of that uh, in these videos along with the hope of something more complete whenever that time comes. Wow. You're reminding me of my days walking about, days of walking about Coleman Barks who made the versions of Rumi's poetry. Mm. Um, and one of his, um, I think it was The Soul of Rumi, he sent me a book and inside it, it just said, here's to our days of walking about and sharing the spoken and sung word. I'm really hearing in your delivery the musicality of what you're, what you're calling forth, really. Musicality of the soul, which has been so missing for so many people. Yeah. It's, it's absolute balm. It's healing balm, isn't it, really? It's medicine. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's, it's, it really is a medicine for our time, I would say. You know? Yeah. And for me, you know, personally, one of the things that I feel most indebted to the Tamar poetic tradition for is this deep understanding of how our inner lives or our apparently inner lives and the apparently outer world are so deeply connected. Mm -hmm. Because I know in my own experience, I, I went through a period of, of, of actually great depression in my own life where I thought, you know, the, the troubles of the world seem so large. Mm -hmm. How can my life possibly matter? Mm -hmm. and, and not only in the sense, what can I possibly do about it, mm -hmm. but the sort of sense of bewilderment about, well, what about my own hopes and dreams? Are those just kind of distractions from the great work of saving the world? 
But one of the things I've learned so deeply from from the Kural and from mm. from my time in South India is this deep continuity between how we embrace what may seem like the smallness of our lives and discover mm. in them the hugeness of the cosmos, and that how we care for our own heart and how we care for the hearts of those around us, both human and more than human, has everything to do with the continuing existence of the world. Absolutely. Because you're calling for so many important themes. I mean, the whole role of leadership in our time is is so lost. It seems so lost, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And yet this book is just really providing a whole new upliftment of of possibility for leadership you know and for true leadership and of course i suppose what's happening particularly with the arising of new science and quantum science and this understanding through the mysticism of of modern day science really the 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 role and power of the of our interconnectedness and leadership as an interconnected field rather than one, you know, despotic human being standing and, and ordering everybody around. Exactly. I sense there's, there's, there's a real calling forth from this book that can empower us as the listener. Yes. You know? And you know, I, I love that you, you highlight the listening because one of the things that Theravallava is very insistent upon right. is not only that a leader must be knowledgeable, wow. but that a leader must be able to listen. There is an entire chapter on on listening as an art that pertains particularly to someone who is in a position of leadership. Right, right. Oh, my God. Well, that's another very strong theme for both of us. Uh, I mean, in my work, you know, because of this extraordinary dilemma for for Western psyches to even believe they have a voice anymore, (laughs) let alone actually access it and and, um, express it. I often say to people now, so that it they they're not focusing so much on, you know, how we've been brought up to express ourselves, to impress others, to perform, mm-hmm. you know, just to entertain. That yeah. all these very surface ways of delivering truths, of giving voice to truth, you know. So I often say to people because they often when you start expressing your voice, even without words to begin with. You know, I just simply say, so how do you feel and how does that sound? Mm. And more important than that even is, what quality of silence does your voice leave behind? Yes. And what's really interesting to me is that every single person that ever just tries that very simple exercise is suddenly so intent on that the silence that's going to follow the sound mm. <laughs> that they're suddenly completely unconcerned about the expression about what if you know of the 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 sort of the trauma of expressing one's broken voice or one's disembodied voice or one's sense of loss or grief or you know whatever it is or that sort of how do i express how i feel about the chaos that's going on in the world right now and all of that if you just simply concentrate on the silence even if the feeling is anger yeah. Uh, you know, or something really fierce can be a really fierce form of compassion. It actually doesn't matter. It's the silence it leaves behind is where the teaching is. And I'm sort of sensing from what you're teaching us here and what you're revealing here to us is that this poetry has a potency that really delivers a quality of silence as a language yeah. of yeah. spirit. Yeah. Even in these very short verses, there'll be 
a kind of infinite silence within them. That's how I experience them. Um, There'll be a, a pause, and that pause will contain infinity. And then the whole poem will sort of reverberate within that infinity, so that each poem, in a way, each individual poem becomes a doorway into the entire work, into the, the silence embraced by the entire work. And so a certain sort of temperament might look at a book like this and think, oh, well, now I have to read all these 1,330 poems, which, of course, is a beautiful and wonderful thing to do. But in a way, uh, the person who dares to find the two or three verses that speaks to their heart mm-hmm. and maybe learn them by heart, recite them out loud and listen to the silence, may find their lives even more deeply transformed. I love that. Absolutely love that. And did that happen upon you, this awareness of silence? Or is there a poem that that might call forth the very theme of silence itself? Hmm, it's a great question. Mm. Mm. One that that really speaks to you or that really does uh, have that impact of silence in the mind, particularly today, because they obviously all do in one form or another. There is one in particular which doesn't speak directly to silence but it also does Mm. it's from a chapter called not being defeated by adversity oh that's pretty that's pretty key isn't it right there (laughs) right there (laughs) and it's the uh the second of these verses and it's an example of a place where there's a there's a pause in the poem and it's that one can enter into a profound silence in that pause even as the poem the rhythm of the poem may continue it goes like this When the wise look within, the flood of adversity vanishes. Mm. When the wise look within, the flood of adversity vanishes. Beautiful. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. It's that simple, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you, you have opened some sovereign doorways here, if I may say, and I'm so grateful to you. And I really thank you for just opening our ears to this new book that you have dedicated literally an extensive period of your life to. There's so much more that I'd love to ask you and discuss with you, and I hope that'll be possible over the years to come. But I just want to thank you very much. I bow to this work that you're doing. I can just hear within it this very, very deep devotional thread that you must have been born with, that you must have come into this life with, that has led you led you this way. And it's it's beautiful to be in the presence of that with you. And it's something that resonates for me in my own life too. And this restoration, you know, the resurrection of poetry as a missing language, a language of wisdom, as you've just described. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so very much for having me and for letting me be in your presence through the presence of your voice and for helping to affirm, I think, what the language, particularly of poetry, is able to help us hear Mm. uh, and the way that the language of poetry helps us, I think, listen to our own hearts even more deeply. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's we obviously share this this same passion, and I'm going to be singing this from the rooftops to everybody that I'm <laughs> working with because it's definitely a book that should be in everyone's uh, household without question. It has a quality of salvation to it, I would say. Is there a poem that you might like us to complete with? That's a great question. Let me just see. 
just because I sense there are more conversations to come. I, I will be looking forward to more mm. more conversations. There's another verse in the in the quote which speaks about the work of wisdom being delight on meeting and feeling on parting, that mm. feeling of, of the parting. But mm. here's one more verse which I think also speaks to the quality of openness that a work like this, a poetic work like this, can help impart. And it's from the first verse on the chapter, Having Kindness. From openness to all people, the practice of kindness comes easily. From openness to all people, the practice of kindness comes easily. May it be so. May it be so. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you. All good wishes to you.